Hi, friends. Here at Beyond the Crucible, we often get a chance to dive into some of the hardest moments of someone's life, everything from facing loss to trying to find your purpose in life. This summer, we've been working extremely hard to pull together a full e-course, our first, filled with more than three hours of lessons learned on how you can find and fully embrace Second Act Significance. To gain access to this course, visit secondactsignificance.com. That's secondactsignificance.com. Now, here's today's podcast episode. Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. When we took my mom off treatment, um, I wrote her a letter and I promised her that like, I supported her decision and I was going to be just fine. You know, like we, we were the ones having honest conversations about the fact that her time was limited and, you know, what did she want? Where did she want to die? What did she want for her funeral? You know, we had that kind of relationship and I felt like I needed her to know that I was going to be okay. And I made the mistake as a younger person thinking that okay meant going back to work, going back to life and just like going back to being who I consider myself to be. But what I didn't realize is the moment you lose someone you love, like someone who you consider to be one of yours, whether it's a parent or a spouse or a child or a best friend, you stop being the same person that you were before. So what does okay look like after you've been through a devastating loss? How does the new person you become in the aftermath of that loss go on living even as you go on grieving? Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. This week, Warwick and I talk with the final guest in our special fall series, Gaining from Loss. She's Marissa Renee Lee, a former official in the Obama White House and a regular contributor to Glamour, Vogue, and The Atlantic. She discusses at length the struggles she's endured since her mother succumbed to breast cancer when Marissa was just 25 years old. She set that emotional journey between the covers of her book, Grief is Love, Living with Loss. In it, she offers a roadmap for readers to help them navigate the complexities of sadness and joy that accompany not just the loss of a loved one, but the loss of anything one loves. And the first healing step on that journey, she says, is giving ourselves permission to grieve, even as we continue to love who or what we are grieving. Well, Marissa, again, thank you so much for being here. I just loved reading your book, Grief is Love, which was full of just so much profound wisdom. Anybody that's had loss, which is so many people, it's just raw, it's honest, it's impactful, and uh, we'll obviously get into this book uh, quite a bit. But I'd love just to start, from what I understand, you grew up in, in New York State, you know, I think maybe upstate New York. Um, I know you're in the Hudson Valley now, maybe maybe that vicinity, I'm not sure. But uh, talk a bit about you know, your upbringing and obviously your mom and dad and before we get sort of to the loss, it's all intertwined, but what was life like for Marissa growing up? 
Thanks so much for having me. It's always a little embarrassing listening to your bio being read. <laughs> I try not to cringe, um, but thank you. Thank you both for inviting me on today. Childhood, honestly, was pretty, I would say, ordinary and unremarkable. I had two parents who loved me very much and also loved each other. A little sister who drove me crazy. Um, lots of friends. You know, both my parents were very active in my school life and in our community from, you know, coaching basketball to serving on the PTA, being a Sunday school teacher. You know, that was that was our life. You know, mom and dad both worked, but they were very clear that their work was all about providing the best possible life for me and my little sister. And it was, it was really lovely and fun until one day everything changed. Um, I was 13 and it was probably right around this time of year, actually. And one day my mom got really sick and she just never got better. And it would take years and lots of misdiagnoses. But ultimately, by the time I was 16, doctors discovered permanent damage in her brain that was caused by multiple sclerosis. So it was, it was a long journey to that diagnosis. And my, my life at home, you know, our family life went from a very carefree, fun, sort of average existence to one that was much more stressful and at times overwhelming and disorienting, you know, with a parent who went from being very able-bodied and active and involved to being disabled and in and out of the hospital and sometimes bedridden or in a wheelchair. Um, so that was, that, that was a really big challenge for me as a young person. So, you know, everybody grows up differently. I mean, some people grow up in an environment where they don't know happiness. They know tragedy, maybe uh, dysfunctional family, just a, you know, really hard upbringing. But it seems like there's two parts to your life. One is before age 13 and after age 13. Obviously, there's when your mother died, when you're 25, there's another uh, separation in the timeline, but talk about, yeah, I mean, can you, I don't know, at times, can you even remember what life was like pre-13? Because it just probably seems like a couple of centuries ago, but it's, it, it felt like there was a time, as you say, when life, maybe not perfect, but was pretty good. And it went from yeah. pretty good to, I don't know if it was awful, but just really painful. It was just this dichotomy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's funny because in my in my mind, and I, I should talk to my dad about this, you know, I don't know if this is actually exactly how it happened. But you know, I remember my parents going to New York City for their wedding anniversary. And that's November 1st. And then I remember my mom soon after that, becoming a different person and a different parent and a sick person. And I think the biggest thing that changed was, you know, I went from this very carefree existence, you know, and that's what childhood is supposed to be, right? To becoming like a mini adult overnight, it felt like. And I don't have, I don't have any regrets for the time I spent as a teenager or a young adult helping to care for my mom and helping to care for our family. But it was a really big shift from what I knew before then. And it was, it was hard. And it was also you know, the nineties. So nobody was talking to me about 
my feelings. Nobody was suggesting that, you know, I go to therapy because it's complicated and challenging having a sick parent. It was more, okay, this is the situation and we're all going to do the best we can and we love each other and we'll do what we can to support each other and just keep moving forward. You know, that was, that was my parents' attitude. That was my attitude, my sister's attitude. And that's, that's what we did, but it was, it was really hard. So talk about that period when you're, you have the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and later on, obviously, you know, breast cancer and, um, you know, it felt like it just got worse. I mean, it didn't get easier, you know? Yeah. I mean, one, one major illness is enough, but more than, I mean, it's just, it's hard to understand. But just talk about those years because it felt like you didn't have a normal childhood, normal high school or teenage years. You were sort of robbed in a sense of that. So probably one stage of grief is, is the person I thought I would be and the person my friends were, I wasn't. So talk about just, and I think you were like primary care, or one of the primary caretakers, caregivers. So just talk about those teenage years, which seems radically different than the teenage years of your friends, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was, it was, so it's interesting, you know, in order to write a book that is at least partially based on your life experiences, you have to unpack a lot of shit. You know, you really have to get at like, what, what is the truth? Like, what was I really feeling? What was I really experiencing then? And what do I feel now and, and, you know, work through a lot of that. Like grief is love required a lot of time in therapy. Um, and one of the things that I realized as an adult was that there was definitely a feeling of resentment. You know, like I, I didn't want to admit when I was younger how hard it was or how burdensome it was or how, you know, frustrating it was at times to have to play that role in my family and to have a sick parent because the last thing that I wanted to do was make things harder for my mom or frankly for my dad either. But like in particular, you know, I could see that she was in pain and still very much every single day trying to be a present supportive parent to us. You know, like it didn't matter how sick she was. She was still going to find a way to get things together for our birthdays, to make sure that, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas were special to let us have, you know, whatever parties and gatherings we wanted to have with our friends when we were younger. You know, like it it didn't matter how much pain she was in or what she endured. Like she continued to keep that focus on us. And as a result, like I, I wanted to do everything I could to make her life easier. And so for me, that meant doubling down on, you know, being best in class with academics and extracurriculars and everything at school and trying to create as many normal teenage childhood experiences as possible. So she didn't feel like her illness was having a negative impact on me. And it it was, it was exhausting and it had, you know, it had long-term health, mental and physical health implications for me, you know, not talking about all of these complicated feelings, you know, when you, when you ignore your emotions, they don't go away. They manifest in other ways. And so for me, from the time I was around 14, 15 until today, I'm almost 40 years old. Like I've had all sorts of stomach problems. And like, I know that it started with, you know, 
mom gets sick with some mystery illness that nobody can figure out and the stress that that put on me as a 13-year-old. I always say whenever I have a chance to talk to people about my childhood and adolescence, I hope that young people like hear about grief is love and hear my story and find ways to get the support they need if they're struggling with either a sick parent or the loss of a parent, because it, it's really hard. You called this series Gaining from Loss, and for you to find the gains that were that were attached to that loss, those losses that you experienced, you had to do the the, the soul work, is where it calls it, to yeah. get through and, and, and really dig in, and your book really helped you to do that. Yeah, 100%. You know, it was, it was a really hard book to write. You know, like I said, there was a lot of therapy, there were a lot of tissues and there was definitely like some chocolate and some bourbon involved. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, like I feel like the process of putting grief is love together was absolutely a healing experience for me. Mm. Um, and that is something that I'm grateful for. You know, I don't know, I don't know if I would have done all of this healing all this soul work as you just called it if not for the book i mean that's that is profound and i want to get to you know the main loss of your mother and and the book but i think one of the things that you're saying is there was this dichotomy as you were dealing with the grief of your mother's illness uh you were not letting it defeat you you were being a strong young woman you were kind of getting great grades you would end up getting uh, into you know Harvard College, which is obviously extremely impressive. And later on, as uh, well, I guess as we've heard, you served in the Obama administration, you know, working in finance. I mean, you were really, you were not letting this defeat you. You were plowing through, pushing ahead, which is wonderful. It's an amazing thing. But yet at the same time, there was the other dichotomy of not letting yourself deal with the loss of, of the dream of who your mother was in your childhood. And and you talk about this a lot in this book about this misnomer that if I admit weakness uh, or grief, I'm a weak person. Therefore, I'm a strong person. I will not let this defy me or defeat me. I'm plowing ahead. So there was almost there was some good in the sense that it's great to be, in my, from my perspective, driven to succeed to achieve. I think that's wonderful. But there was the good and the bad. So talk about this almost yin, yin yang thing about as you were dealing with yeah i mean i i really believed that if i was honest about what i was feeling that i would just be like taken down by these feelings and just end up in this super depressed and overwhelmed space that i would never come out of so instead i just tried to just bury them you know just swallow them shove them down and ignore them which doesn't work. And in my case, manifested in both physical and, you know, longer term mental health consequences. Like I still struggle with anxiety from time to time. And I also bring that back to when my mom got sick and my childhood and my adolescence. And one of the things that I lift up in grief is love that I think is really important for people to understand, especially, you know, overachievers who just want to keep like plowing through the hard things the only thing that makes difficult and challenging emotions easier to deal with is acknowledgement. Like naming our feelings is what reduces their power over us. And I think 
we often assume the reverse. And that's not, that's not just like me saying that, uh, that is actual research on the brain and emotion and healing. So if you are going through it right now, whether it's grief or something similar, and you're like, oh, like I, I can't bring myself to even acknowledge it because that'll make it worse. That's actually what makes it a little bit better. So um, how old was your mother? How old were you when she passed? So just talk about that because you were going through grieving yeah. up until that point and you thought life was tough. It got exponentially tougher. The grief probably got exponentially worse after. And it probably seemed pretty bad before. So just talk about what happened and the impact it had on you. Yeah. So it's funny you ask the age piece because I get really hung up on that. Um, because I was, so when my mom first got sick, I was only 13. She was only 37. And as a almost 40 year old, like that feels crazy to me now. And then when she was diagnosed with the cancer, I was 22 and she would have been 42, which like is officially a peer, you know, that's younger than my husband is now. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when she passed away, I had just turned 25 and she had just turned 49. Um, and so it's just like, it, it like blows my mind sometimes thinking about how young she was when all of these things happened to her. Um, but as I was graduating from college, you know, my mom had been having a bad, probably let's call it three to six months where she was in and out of the hospital a bunch, constantly going to the doctors, she's in a lot of pain and she wasn't a complainer. Um, so I, I knew that there was something wrong. You know, my dad knew my mom, knew, like we believed her, but a lot of doctors said that, you know, basically they thought it was in her head. My grandmother had just passed away quite suddenly that fall and folks thought that this was just kind of an emotional response that was manifesting in physical ways. She continued to seek out different doctors and support and eventually ended up being seen by an orthopedic surgeon, like thinking like there was something wrong with her bones, you know, because nobody could figure it out. And the guy that she saw was actually also a family friend. So he was really listening to her and very committed to uncovering what was going on. And he found lesions on her spine. And he said, and I, I will never forget this because I then saw him, you know, at a friend's graduation party a few weeks later. He said that was the worst day in his entire career. Like to be with someone that he, you know, knew on some level. So knew that she'd already been sick for all of this time and, you know, had gotten the runaround from all of these other doctors. And he found cancer at the bones and had to tell her that on top of the MS. Like it just, he said, it's a moment he will never forget. Um, and so after the cancer was identified in her bones, we did follow-up appointments with oncologists and learned that it was stage four breast cancer that had migrated throughout her skeletal system. And this was the week I was graduating from Harvard. And so I went from, you know, doctor's office in upstate New York back to Cambridge, did all of the end of school year, senior week, fun festivities with this like cloud of grief and stress kind of hanging over my head. 
And then I decided to spend a year at home with my mom and dad, just kind of helping them figure out how to navigate this very complicated diagnosis or set of diagnoses and health situation. About two and a half, three years later, we took her off of treatment for both diseases because at that point, you know, the cancer was in her brain. She was having problems with her lungs, like her body had just had enough. And so we made the decision together as a family. And then a few weeks after we made the decision, you know, we thought we had six months, a year or something like that. But six weeks later, we were hanging out in the living room. You know, she was having a bad day, but she'd had so many bad days in the course of my life with her that it didn't really, it didn't register that like today, that day was going to be like the bad day, you know? And she and I shared a joke and then she collapsed and was gone a few hours later. Um, and leading up to her death, you know, again, my type A Harvard Wall Street brain was like, I'm going to make the spreadsheets. I got my list. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to prepare myself, to prepare her, our family for her to die. And I thought that because I was so organized around her death, that that would make the grief easier on the other side. And it just, it just wasn't true. Like I, I mean, it, it knocked me on my ass and I didn't, I didn't understand why. And I spent months berating myself for having so many feelings about an ordinary occurrence. You know, we're all going to lose our parents someday, right? Like that's what I would tell myself. Like it, it's really not that big of a deal that your mom died, which is crazy. Um, and it was, it was awful until one day. And I, I don't know what shifted for me. Like, I wish I could remember it, but I honestly don't know. But it was one day, six months after she passed away, I wrote in my journal, you know, like there's nothing wrong with me. Like where the problem sits is in how our culture treats people who are grieving and like how we talk about and describe grief and loss, because what you see on TV and in the movies where somebody dies, everybody puts on black and goes to the funeral. And then everybody goes back to life a few days or a week or so later, like this bullshit, that's not how it works. And so I wrote to myself and you know, I said, I'm going to write a book about grief. That's not going to be super sad and depressing. That will tell the truth about what grief really is. And that will be a New York times bestseller. So we're still waiting on the New York times, but um, I think I think I checked the other few boxes. Okay, sixty-seven percent is good, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, you you sure did. So so talk about that. I mean, life was pretty tough beforehand, and you you know driven, uh, you know Harvard, Wall Street. You got the spreadsheets, and people might think you know, uh, and you write about this in the book. Marissa is a great. She's you know that strong black woman. She's driven. She's like a role model for other women, maybe other black women. She's 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 doing it all. I mean, she is not letting anything defeat her. And there was this. I, mean, I don't know if there was you know subconscious expectation within yourself, but oh, yeah. on the one hand, you had had this appearance of boy, Marissa is intelligent. She's impressive. She's driven. She's. She's somebody you admire. She is an amazing person, which is great for people to think that. That's not bad, right? That's awesome. But yet inside, I mean, you write about having trouble sleeping, taking all sorts of stuff to try. Inside, you were breaking apart. I think you write about being in stairwells of hospitals where they know to leave you alone. So talk about 
there was the public Marissa, but then there's the private internal that people didn't know that was there. So just talk about the overwhelming, you know, almost tsunami tidal wave of grief that hit you that other people probably didn't really see. Yeah, you know, I when we took my mom off treatment, um, I wrote her a letter and I promised her that like I supported her decision and I was gonna be just fine. You know, like we we were the ones having honest conversations about the fact that her time was limited and you know, what did she want? Where did she want to die? What did she want for her funeral? You know, we had that kind of relationship. And I felt like I needed her to know that I was going to be okay. And I made the mistake as a younger person thinking that okay meant going back to work, going back to life, and just like going back to being who I consider myself to be. But what I didn't realize is the moment you lose someone you love, like someone who you consider to be one of yours, whether it's a parent or a spouse or a child or a best friend, you stop being the same person that you were before. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that at 5.37 p.m. on February 28th, when my mom died, that like there was a part of me, for better or worse, that died with her. And now what I needed to do to be okay was figure out, like, who am I in this world without this woman who was both my mom, but also she was someone who I'd oriented my life around to some extent since I was 13 years old. So like there was a lot of my identity kind of tied up in her as well. And because I thought that the grief would be easier because I was prepared and organized, because I like believed that I was strong and I'd already been through a bunch in life. And so I, I just, I didn't think it would be as hard as it was going to be. And then because I promised her I would be fine, but didn't really know what that meant. I forced myself to go back to work two weeks after we buried her to continue running a nonprofit on the side while I worked on Wall Street during the height of the financial crisis to try to like be okay, even though I very much was not okay. And because I had all of these messed up ideas about grief and loss and like who I was and what I was meant to do. I didn't feel comfortable sharing with anyone else, like just how bad it was. But literally, you know, every day I was able to like get myself up, get myself dressed. Like sometimes it was hard and only on three or four hours sleep, but like I could get myself ready for work, get on the subway. But the second that I started to leave the subway stop at Wall Street in New York City and climb the stairs to like head to my office, I would start having a debilitating panic attack. I could make it to the basement of the investment bank where I worked. And that's where I would spend the first, I don't know, like 45 minutes, hour. Like I I truly don't know how much time I spent down there. And there was one friend who like knew about my morning routine, the only other woman in the entire banking department. And she would come down whenever I emailed her, you know, when I was like, starting to put myself back together. And she would bring me a Xanax from my desk, a cookie and a soy latte. And that was my routine for months. And I just was like, oh, I guess this is this is what it's supposed to be. You know, I don't really know what else to do and not asking for help. Like that's just, that's what I did until it stopped. Um, and so I think, I think it's really important when you're dealing with grief or some other 
deeply challenging emotion or experience to give yourself permission to just be with the feelings and to find your way through it and to ask for help because you can't like, you can't do this stuff on your own. Like healing is a very individual experience and your grief is very much yours alone, but that doesn't mean you have to do it all alone. And as supportive as my community of friends and family were at the time, like I just didn't feel comfortable opening up to how bad it was because I thought that was wrong. I mean, that's so profound and so sad, but so real for you know everybody that's been through grief. Just I want to kind of pivot a bit because you're talking about it, some of the themes in your book, and I love the title of your book, "Grief Is Love." Just talk about what you mean by that, because there's some profound truth. And before I let you answer that question, one of the sad and and good things about tragedy is, you know, you can learn profound wisdom. It's not a wisdom that you want. You don't want to learn wisdom no. this way. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, mm-hmm. please, can you give it to me some other way? But for whatever reason, the way the universe, God, have you view it, not everybody does, but there's the opportunity to learn profound r- wisdom through tragedy. And you certainly have, from my perspective, um, whether you wanted to or not, you have, you know. Uh, but so talk about grief is love, because that is, there's a profound uh, concept behind that title. Yeah. So for me, the title and the whole experience of writing the book was actually born from another loss. You know, after years of infertility and IVF and egg donors and doing literally everything in my power to like get pregnant and sustain a pregnancy, including letting an acupuncturist electrocute my uterus, um, Mm. my husband and I lost the pregnancy you know, a few weeks later. And I, I am a practical and progressive woman. So it's, it's, it wasn't even for me about the pregnancy itself, but it was more about the hope for our future life as parents and the hope that we held for that child, like having that taken away. And this was at the end of a years long process. Like this was the the last chance, the last opportunity, like this is where everybody was placing their bet and it didn't, it didn't work out. Um, and when it didn't work out, I was both devastated that it didn't work out. I was also like physically very sick from the fact that it didn't work out. And all I wanted was my mom. And at that point she'd been dead for almost 12 years. And I realized then I was like, I'm definitely not over this. Like I never really understood what that whole getting over it thing meant, but I was like, I'm clearly not over it. Like I, I I wish my mom were here to like help me figure out what to do to help me feel better, like to take care of me. And she's not, and it sucks. And then a couple months after that loss, when I was still dealing with both the physical and the emotional consequences, we all found ourselves living in the midst of a pandemic. And the only thing I could do was just like write my way through it. And as I realized that there's no point in trying to get over it. And what you actually have to do is learn to live with your losses. I, I sort of understand like that that is true because of the love that we share with people. Like if somebody dies who you have no connection to at all, 
you are probably going to feel bad or, you know, maybe feel bad for like their family. Like you're going to, you're going to feel a little something if you are a person with some degree of empathy, right? But it's not the kind of thing that's going to continue to come up for you that you're going to have to continually deal with. Whereas when you lose someone who you share an unconditional love relationship with, like your brain is forced to figure out what it looks like to exist in the world without them. And as a part of that, you need to reconcile all of this love that you shared with someone who's no longer here. And it's like, what does that look like? How does that work? And I finally realized that the pain that we feel is because fundamentally, like that that grief is inextricably connected to the love that you share with someone. And what I realized is, you know, love is both feeling and action. And I started thinking about this a lot as I became a new mom when I was wrapping up this book. And it's like, okay, if love is both feeling and action, we grieve because these people that we love so much that we shared so much of our life with are no longer here because they can no longer act on that love. And that hurts. Like that sucks, especially when other losses take place or things happen in life where you really want them there. But I think you can continue to both feel their love for you and continue to hold love for them. Like just because my mom's not here, like I'm not going to forget about her. Like there are always going to be things that make me think about her, that make me miss her or I'm forced to acknowledge the absence. And so for me, fundamentally, I came out with, oh yeah, like grief is just another form of love. And unfortunately, it's often a painful form of love. You know, one of the things that you state, and there's so many profound statements, truths that you say, one that really struck me in particular is you say, grief like love is also limitless, which means we have to find a way to live with it. The profound truth is not like, okay, I'm a strong person, you know, I'll take three to six months and then, then we'll be done. I'm going to find a way through it. And obviously, you know, we're you know, we're, we're, very, uh, we're very different, but, you know, both my parents, well, my mother was extremely driven in a lot of ways. Uh, so I have, I think, some of her perseverance, but left to my own devices, I'd have a little bit of that mentality is that, you know, I'm a strong-willed person with perseverance. I'm pretty, if not very well aware of my feelings, faults, all the rest. I'm pretty self-aware. Okay, I have the intelligence, you know, like, Oxford, Harvard Business School, I have the capacity, the intelligence, and the emotional understanding. I have what I need. Let's let's yep. you know, let's power through this, let's make it go away because, you know, I mean, talking about it does help. No question. But it's not like it makes it go away. It makes it easy yep. to live with, but it's so it's so profound that, you know, it's limitless. It doesn't go away. I mean, that's maybe it's obvious, but to me that's a revelation for most people that goes through grief. It's like, oh, really? Oh, you mean it's okay to have days when something triggers me? And yep. I mean, you know, it's like, I lost my dad who was in his late 80s when he died because I was from marriage number three. And my dad died in early 87. That's like 30 plus years ago. I still miss him. I will have dreams occasionally where he's in it. I've been looking for the right time to say this to you, Marissa. Um, my mother passed away in uh, 1994. Um, and she was only 63, um, which now that I'm 57, I can put yeah. only in front. I can put only in front of 63. <laughs> yes. I couldn't then, but that was 28 years ago. 
working on the preparation for this show, studying your story and and the the insights that you've gained about how grief doesn't end just like love doesn't end. Um, you may be able to tell if anybody is watching this on YouTube or you see a clip, uh, you've been around for 140 episodes, you know, listener that I'm, I like to wear hats. I'm a little, I'm a little fancy in terms of, but I also like to wear rings a lot. The problem is I can't wear rings on the show because they clack on my microphone. <laughs> but, the, but today, right before we got on this call, I have behind me a bookcase this is going somewhere. Trust me. I trust I have you. Behind, I have behind me a bookcase and I have things stored in there. And one of the things I have stored in there is what you'll see here on my finger. That is a dollar bill that was folded into a ring. And it was folded into a ring more than almost 40 years ago by my mother. Oh. And I, as I was preparing this area to go with this show to interview you, I was like, I was hit with a wave of grief. We talked to another uh, guest last week about grief doesn't come necessarily in a linear process. They're waves and they can come when you don't expect them. And I was hit with this wave of grief about missing my mom. And I thought, you know what? I'm talking to Marissa Renee Lee yep. today about the loss of her mother. I'm going to bring my mom with me to this episode. Love it. And that grief that I felt in that loss. And I'm not going to lie and say that every day I think about her. I don't weeks, months, you know, can go by where I don't. But in that moment, I did in that moment, the love washed over me just as the grief washed over me. And I thought I'm going to honor her in this way. And I just want to thank you for both, both being honest about your grief experience and the lessons that you've learned, but then also inspiring me to to bring mom to the show today. So I love it. That. I love it. Gary, I brought my mom too. I know I realize you guys probably <laughs> can't see this, but there's sure. Oh yeah, wow. Our last Christmases. Yeah. I'm with yeah. you. You know what? I, and thank you for sharing that, Gary. I mean, what, what I love about what you're saying, and you talk about this in the early chapters, is just the permission to grieve your way. Everybody's different. Yes. Everybody processes yes. grief differently. And it's, we often think that uh, we need to be caring for others. You spent a good part of your life. You know, it's, it's not about me, it's about others. And, you know, you write later about you've got to actually care for yourself. A lot of studies these days say, you know, like in the airplane, you know, if you've got young kids, put, you know, put the uh, oxygen mask on yourself first. If you can't care for yourself, and this is in the later chapters, you won't be able to care in your case for your husband and your son, or you won't be a good friend or anything. I mean, so you know, if you care for other people, you should care for yourself. So that's in the later chapters. But I love just this permission to grieve. It's not weakness to say, hey, I'm not doing well. No, it's actually it's to human. me, it's human to me. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of courage. It's being brave enough to say, I'm not okay. It's not weakness is profound strength. So just talk about some of these lessons that listeners can hopefully understand. You know, grieve your way. You have yes. the permission to grieve. It's not weakness. It's courage to actually grieve and find a safe place, safe person where you can say, hey, you know what? I'm not doing okay. I'm just doing terrible. So yeah, I think in, in American and like sort of generally in Western culture, we glorify all things positive. Like mm. I'm good, I'm okay. You know, turn your lemons into lemonade, blah blah blah. But if you look at the research, 
as human beings, we are born with, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but five or six innate emotions. And half of them are things that we have come to judge and categorize as negative. And it's like, how can it actually be negative if we were all born to feel these different things and to feel in this way sometimes, you know, like it is normal to be sad. And I will tell you, being the parent of a baby right now has been a great reminder of sort of the fullness of the human experience and the full spectrum of emotions that we should all be expected to experience. Like I'm sick of this, you know, sort of pull yourself up by your emotional bootstraps mentality. And instead I want to see people giving themselves permission to just be human, like to have a hard time, to have a bad day, to not feel like your best, most perfect Instagram worthy self 24 (laughs) seven. Like, it's just like, it's not, that's just not real. Like you can't, you can't live like that. And so I wanted to, I wanted to dig into a bunch of those themes in the book, but just to go back to what you said, a few things, you know, permission to grieve felt really important to me because when I sat down to write the second version of this book, because the first version was one that I knew wasn't right. And I realized one day that it wasn't right because it focused too much on grief and less on healing. You know, like I wanted to write a book that got at what has enabled me to live this full, you know, hot pink, joyful life in the midst of multiple significant losses. And one of the first ingredients, and it is the first chapter in the book, and also the longest chapter in the book, is permission. Like, I finally had to stop trying to live up to either my own warped expectations or other people's expectations around my personal emotional well-being and give myself permission to feel however I feel each day about my mom, about the pregnancy loss. You know, when I was writing the book, there was also a lot of grief around going through the adoption process. Like that was just a really hard, stressful thing. So once I started giving myself permission, it felt a lot easier to identify, like, what are the things that can help me through this difficult time? You know, whether it's talking about and giving some voice to my feelings, or, you know, I find writing to be very therapeutic, or going to a counselor, or, you know, just going for a walk, or doing a meditation, you know, like what, like, I felt like I couldn't get at the what's going to help me get through the really hard moments without first giving myself permission to like feel and acknowledge the hard moments. And then one of the other things that I want to make sure people understand, you know, we talked about how grief is limitless, how there is no timeline. And one of the things that I find a lot of people get really stuck on around grief is the idea of the five stages of grief. (laughs) Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, brilliant woman, brilliant writer, researcher, she herself makes very clear that that book and her five stages, like that wasn't written for you or me or for you, Gary, like that was written for people who were dying themselves. And so we have taken this dated framework that wasn't even supposed to apply to bereaved people. And we have applied it to bereaved people in a way that I think in more cases than not causes harm. Because when you hear something like stages, you know, you think that there are these sequential steps like AA or the developmental milestones that we look for in our little children that you're supposed to go through in this very ordered way. And when that doesn't happen, you're like, I messed up. Like now I I feel like shit. And it turns out I'm grieving wrong. Like 
no, that's not true. Like, that's just absolutely not true. Um, so no timelines, no stages. Please give yourself permission. And I think that while I'm very much opposed to the whole taking lemons and turning them into lemonade, I do think that grief and joy can exist simultaneously. If you are honest and open about what you're experiencing, I think that does sometimes create space for joy. And I'm not talking about the like overwhelming sense of happiness that maybe you had on your wedding day or when your child was born or whatever, but even just a moment where you know you look outside and the sun is shining and you feel a little bit better for 90 seconds. Um, and so I want to make sure that people honor the fullness of their experience, which can include some joy or some laughter, even when you're deep in grief. There's a lot of wisdom here. I mean, just a couple of the, the thoughts, being vulnerable for a purpose, so to speak, or just, just ex expressing the fact you're not doing well. One of the things you obviously write about, certainly by implication, is you have to choose wisely. There can be some family members who we love very dearly who want to uh, fix us. Oh, in the, and they'll be like, oh, thanks so much for sharing, Marissa. You need to do X. Go count yeah. to counseling. Yeah. Do the, the counseling's not bad, but it's like, here's a five-point plan of how yeah. to help. Or uh, another common one is the like, but you have this and you have this and you have that. So like, don't be sad. Don't be whatever. Well, you, you have um, a wonderful husband and yeah. a baby. Yeah. You should be yeah. full of joy. You should you be know, fine. You do, yeah. you do meaningful. Yeah. So you want to find people that are not just a safe place, but a wise place. The safe and wise people will sit there and listen. They might say, I'm sorry. They will be very short on answers and long on listening and empathy. And not everybody's wired that way. And if that's family members, great. If it's not, nothing against family, but find yeah. people that will listen and not try and fix you. Right? Yeah. I mean, figure you know, out who your crew is. Like, who are the, you know, two people, maybe three, who you can text when you're going through it who aren't going to jump to solutions and are just going to meet you with compassion and empathy. Indeed. You talk also about grace, um, grace for yourself and, uh, and grace for others. And that's not easy. I know, you know, you uh, write in the book about a, a very good friend, I think in, in, in college, who was playing for the Irish women's soccer team and had a big match. And it's like, she's thinking, this is like, one of the highlights of my career, you're thinking, this is my best friend. You need to be here. And yeah. it took a while to oh, yeah. get through that one and different perspectives. But, you know, just having grace for you, for others and forgiveness, that's important. Grace for yourself and other people. And if people talk about agree to disagree, but some people have, you might think, well, I would never do that. If I was on X soccer team, I'd drop it in a heartbeat. And you might think, well, I feel that's wrong. That yeah. may or may not be, but talk a bit about grace for yourself and grace for others, because it's easy to get, it's easy for anger to just multiply and start getting angry at other people, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, you know, I think, I think when you're hurting, it is hard to leave room for other people's imperfections of any kind, and when you're hurting and you have expectations around how people in your life are supposed to support you and then they don't, it's really hard. And I think in some instances, frankly, proper boundaries may make the most sense. You know, if it's if it's someone who's not interested in apologizing or trying to kind of 
you know, meet you halfway and show you the care and love and support that you need, you probably just need to put up some boundaries and, you know, go find a different friend or family member to support you. But when people are on your team and like really want to be there for you and bearing in mind the understanding that as far as I can tell at this point, like grief doesn't go away. So you want to keep people in your life who really want to be there for you for the long haul, because it's going to keep coming up. You're going to continue to be triggered by it. I just think it's really important to be willing to forgive and to extend grace because we're all human. And, you know, most days we're all doing the best we can. And then I think it's equally important for you to extend grace to yourself. When you are grieving, grief takes over your body and your mind. And I'm not just saying that, like there is scientific research that shows the direct impact that grief has on your brain. And that impact makes it hard for you to do the things that you've become accustomed to do, or in some cases for you to do things the way that you're used to doing them, because you're just, you're not yourself when grief has taken over. I just, I just think that grace is, it really is a two-way street. Um, and I, I want people to think about grace as a key ingredient in living with loss. That's so well said. I know as we're getting to the summary stage, I mean, a number of things you've said is so profound is you don't get over loss. You don't get over typically grief, at least not from my perspective. You learn to balance grief and love and living with grief and living with your family and career. It's all different strands in the same stream, if you will. It's just part of part of life, there will be things that that trigger you, whether it's, you know, in my case, a loss of a family business, a loss of my dad, loss of my mother, there will be there will be things that come up and uh, you know, it could be, you know, simple as uh, I remember years ago, um, it's probably not a great example, but um uh, when my kids were small, they know I grew up obviously very wealthy. And when we had Christmas trees, we had staff to put stuff up, you know, the Christmas ornaments on. Sounds kind of bizarre. And I remember uh, my kids were small and they said, well, Daddy, that that's so sad that you didn't do it as a family. And when they said that, I was just struck by with like a wave of grief and loss because it's like, you know what? You're right. I would have loved to grow up in a family where you're doing it. it most people take yeah. that for granted. Now that was part of gosh, I guess I grew up different. In some ways, there's a loss of what others had, the simple Christmases rather than the stuff. That's a small example, but there will be things that trigger us for some reason out of the blue. And that's just part of life. And what you're saying, and I want listeners to hear this, you know, don't expect to get over loss. You know, you might learn to live with it better. I don't know, but you learn to live with it. Does does that make sense? Because sometimes people think, if I read the right books, have the right no. counselor. You know what? If I just, and you talk about this, if I just found the right counselor, he or she could really, you know, flip the switch and I would be, praise God, I'll, I'm healed. No grief. That's awesome. I mean, unfortunately, I just, I just don't think that's how, you know, I'm almost 15 years into my journey, you know, following the loss of my mom. And the research that I looked at about like not just how grief impacts your brain, but also, how love imprints on your brain. Like you're never going to forget about your father 
or about the fact that, you know, you had this family business that is no longer a family business. Like you're, you're never going to forget about those things. And because they stay stored and because you're never going to forget, there are always going to be moments, some joyful, some painful that trigger you. It's just, it's, it's baked into who you are and there's nothing wrong with that. This is a perfect time to uh, listen to the captain who's just turned on the fasten seatbelt sign <laughs> indicating that we have begun our descent to end this very fascinating and helpful discussion and this cap on our series, Gaining from Loss. I want to do a couple things, uh, Marissa, before I let Warwick ask the last question. First thing, very important, how can listeners find you and find out more about you online? Where can they get their hands on your book and learn more about what it is that you do? So you can buy Grief is Love pretty much anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Target, local booksellers, Barnes & Noble, etc., um, you can find me. I'm Marissa Renee Lee on all social platforms, and that's also my website. So please, please do follow along on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, and I hope that you will consider buying the book. You know, it's not it's not perfect. I don't know that there is a perfect book on grief, but I'm really trying to normalize the experience of grief and loss for people and ensure that. Everyone has access to the things they need to heal from loss. And that's a perfect segue into the second thing I want to do here, because as I've said um, a couple of times, this is the last episode with a guest of our series, Gaining from Loss. And there's something that I found that you wrote for Vogue magazine last October called How I Learned to Find Joy During Times of Grief. And the sentence that you have that sort of sets up the, the five areas that you talk about, I think is a great capstone for this series because you say this, as I've worked to manage my grief over the years, here's how I've learned to cultivate joy. I would, I would edit that a little bit at the end of this series for the context of this series to say, as I've worked to manage my loss over the years, here's how I've learned to, I'll take out cultivate joy and with your permission, slide in, create gain from the loss. Yes. But here are the five things. And I want to do this. I've never done this before. So hopefully, and, and but you've got the kind of mind I think is going to make this work out really well. <laughs> I want to play this as sort of a fast money on a game show thing where I'm going to tell you, right? I'm going to say, here's the first point that you said about this idea of how you manage grief over the years um, to find joy. You have five points and, 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 I, I don't want you to have to dive too deeply into it, but the first couple thoughts that come to your head when I say, here's the first thing you wrote that you do that. And the first thing that you wrote to cultivate joy through grief and through loss, the first thing you wrote is identify what you need and take it. A couple sentences on what you meant yes, by that. Yes, honestly, this gets back to what Warwick was saying about feelings. You know, figure out what you're feeling and then figure out what you need in order to access joy. You know, it may be that today is just a day for you to sit with some sad feelings and like let them wash over you so that tomorrow can be more joyful. Or it may be something more specific like going to counseling. But whatever it is, figure it out and take it because you deserve to be happy. Excellent. Point one wrapped. Point two, set boundaries and stick to them. 
couple sentences on that. Yeah, this is a big one. I think especially with the approaching holiday season here in the States, I think it's really important if you're having a hard time to not force yourself into a bunch of shoulds, for lack of a more technical term, like, oh, I should do this work thing. I should go to that event. I should celebrate Thanksgiving in this kind of a way, even though I'm pretty sure it's going to make me feel like shit. So get rid of the shoulds and set boundaries around what you are and aren't comfortable doing while you're grieving. The third point is going to sound like uh, we've called it from crucible leadership beyond the crucible uh, <laughs> texts because Warwick uses this exact phrase. It's in the, the, the new e-course that we've created. And your third point is to identify and an accountability partner. What do you mean by that? Oh yeah, that's super important. So I don't know about the two of you, but I am really good at being hard on myself and also sometimes not so great at doing the things that I know I need to do to care for myself. You know, I I preach about it. I talk about it all the time, but it's hard to put into practice when you have a full-time job, a new house and a new baby. Um, And so I have a couple of girlfriends who we hold each other accountable to do the things that we know we need to do to, in order to like pour into our families and pour into our work. And so figure out who in your crew you can link up with and just, you know, be text buddies around what are you doing for yourself today? Like, what are your plans for the weekend? How are you making sure that you're getting the rest and the care that you need? Three fifths of the way through the fourth point of how you live with joy after loss is celebrate something period, anything. Talk about that. (laughs) So my mom was a big celebrations person. So I'm all about celebrating wins, even if they're teeny tiny ones. So if you're having a hard time and today you manage to both get out of bed and brush your teeth, like feel free to celebrate that. It's okay. Like give yourself a pat on the back. Awesome. And one of the things that you may celebrate, because I picked this up in some of the research, you love the Godfather. So do I. So if we ever, ever if we ever meet, we have to watch, um, you know, <laughs> eat some cannoli and watch The Godfather. Here's your last point. And I love this point, not only for your story, Lisa. I'm sorry, Lisa. That's my I'm going to back up. Well, okay, I'm not going to back up. I'm yeah, just going to say, it's okay. uh, uh, Marissa, wow. That Hello, Dr. Freud. That is fast. Yeah. That's that's awesome. I mean, she came to visit. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I'm talking about her, right? And, yeah. and that's the fifth point. The fifth point here is. And I love this for your story and for our series. Your fifth point is be a Lisa. Yeah. So for me, um, be a Lisa is all about giving back. And there is research that points to when we are in service of others, it usually does help our own mental and emotional well-being. So that's when I say be a Lisa, I mean, find something you can do for somebody else. Excellent. Warwick. I'll let you have the last couple of questions, but that's a, I mean, that sounds a little bit like what we say at Beyond the Crucible, live a life of significance, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others, right? Just as we kind of sum up here, I love as you talk about, you know, the legacy of your mother and, you know, living her, you know, legacy in a sense. And I also love just the way that, you know, you've you've managed to use the loss to help so many, and I've found on my own way, and I'm sure you're finding this, as you write about the pain and people say, you know, uh, Marissa, what you've written really helped me. It doesn't make the grief go away, but it, maybe it makes it a couple degrees more manageable. 
Yes. It sort of like drops of, of grace to a person that maybe feel like they're wandering through the desert and looking for an oasis. I've found that it's not necessarily a reason to do it, but it's a byproduct. So just as we s- summarize here, what we'd, you know, I often like to ask, you know, what's sort of a word of hope that you would give people? Because maybe today is somebody's worst day or worst year, worst decade. Uh, what's a, a, a message of hope uh, that you would give to that person? Well, it's funny that you use the word hope because I would say like, choose hope, like keep believing that there is something better than the worst pain of grief because there is. And while we know the grief doesn't go away, it's not the devastating on the floor of an investment bank panic attack situation that it was 15 years ago. You know, now it's more subtle and less overwhelming. And I have managed to create like a big, full, joyful life in the absence of my mother while also creating space for her. But I think you can only do that if you are committed to hope and if you really believe that there is something better than the worst pain that you experience when you lose someone you love. That sound you've heard, listener, is the plane on the ground that Marissa has landed the plane and we've landed this series, Gaining from Loss. So thank you, uh, Marissa Renee Lee. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. Warwick and I will be back next week with a wrap-up of all the things we've learned. See you then.